Welcome to the Power Podcast and our 2020 theme, Power Perspective. I'm your host, Malia Warner, here to share ideas to help you elevate your life to the next level by seeing things in a new way. This is episode 67, Why You Fight With Your Spouse. Hello, welcome. How are you? How are things at your house? At our house, our mama cat birthed seven baby kittens this week. Very exciting when we have a new litter of kittens here. We have this mama cat that is just fabulous. She has wonderful kittens and we sell them to really good homes and have made a lot of families happy with a new pet. And it's kind of good timing because families are getting pets right now as everyone is quarantined inside with coronavirus and need a little soft place to land. So we are really excited at our house that we have these adorable little kittens to love on for the next seven, eight weeks before they go to their future families. And wherever you are, I hope you have something soft, cuddly, therapeutic to help get through this time. I want to say thank you for being here. Of all of the things you could be listening to or binge watching on Netflix at this moment, I am so glad you clicked the play button on the Power Podcast. It means the world to me to have you here. And my hope is that at the end of this 15-20 minutes, you will finish the episode with an expanded perspective that empowers you to make one positive change in your life that makes your day, your week, your coming months even better. I want to say that life can be so good. It really can. Life is amazing. It can be rich and full of joy and purpose and meaning. And this has nothing to do with an amount of money or the type of house you live in, or having a life free from struggle and problems? What if you could feel good right here, right now, smack in the middle of your life, smack in the middle of your problems? What if you could even feel good about your problems? Because problems are awesome. Problems are what make life interesting. Problems give us a puzzle to solve, a way to use our brains to discover and create solutions. And in the process, to get a little more wise, to become a little more compassionate, to develop a little more depth of character. And one of the problems we often experience is fighting with the people we love. Why do we do this? We love these people. For the most part, we've chosen to live with these people, to share our life with them. So why don't we always feel lovey and mushy and oozy with happiness around them? Isn't that what life with Prince Charming is supposed to be? A literal happy ever after? In today's episode, I am talking about the full-out disagreement about something that triggers a war of words, emotions, strings of accusations, and possibly throwing things like pillows or books or shoes or vases or even fists. These are the kinds of fights that leave you doubting how you could have ever liked your partner in the first place and why you're even married. 
Or maybe you wonder if you'll be able to stay married and ever come to a resolution. In short, these arguments don't feel good. They leave you feeling unsettled and uncertain. They rob you of trust in your relationship and your commitment. And even after you make up, these arguments can leave a sting and a hesitancy that never really goes away and may also resurface in the next blow up. My husband and I have had plenty of these types of explosions over the years. You can ask any of our children. I don't even try to pretend to be one of those church couples who stand up at the pulpit and say they've never argued a day in their life. Honestly, it makes me wonder if they're robots or if one person is always conceding to the other. Conflict in relationships is a good thing. It means that you have opinions and generally people with opinions are more interesting to be around. Conflict means that you have things that you stand for, that you feel strongly about. No conflict or disagreement can often mean that one person is completely disappearing into the other. And did you know, and this is the good news, that it is the resolution of conflict that builds intimacy. Our relationships are strengthened by learning how to resolve differences. But often what happens in these blow-up explosive arguments is that they aren't resolved. The emotions, feelings, and words spoken in anger linger, and though they may go dormant for a while, they never really go away, but simmer beneath the surface, waiting to explode at the next trigger. I can certainly relate to this. My husband and I have had our fair share of these arguments to the point that I began numbering them. And when I would get tired of the same issue surfacing, I would say, this is number 131. This is the same argument over and over again. It's just number 131. Just just go back and grab that one from the file and just get everything that I said on record there and replay it here again, because it's all gonna be the same. And where the frustration comes and where the relationship really breaks down is when these issues are never resolved. And the arguments rehash the same things over and over again, like your hamster stuck spinning the same wheel, but never moving forward. It makes me happy to say, and I mean that sincerely, it makes me really happy to say that my husband and I don't have these frequent explosive fights. Sure, we have disagreements from time to time, but we go much, much longer in between. It is possible. It is possible to go from having heated daily fights to maybe a weekly fight to then maybe a bi-weekly to a once a month fight to, wow, we haven't had a blow up in over six months. And it's not because we're ignoring each other or not talking to each other. It's also not because we're special, though we really are, or that we're more in love than anybody else, or that we're more charitable or giving, because I'm definitely not, I'm pretty selfish. It is because we've learned the real reason why we fight. And we've learned some tools that we're able to pull out of our nifty tool bag when our marriage gets a crack and needs to be fixed. What do you think? Are you ready? Would you like me to tell you the reason why you fight with your spouse? 
I guarantee it is not about the car or the yard or emptying the garbage or whether or not to put in a new fence or move or remodel the house or whose fault it is that child number four has anger issues or whose turn it is to change the diaper or any of those things. These things are just triggers. The fight is there waiting to happen. And in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter what the trigger is. The trigger isn't the fight. We've all experienced this where you get fighting and then all the same old issues and triggers come up until you can't even remember what you were fighting about in the first place. And that is because the fight has nothing to do with the triggers. What is the reason for why you fight with your spouse? Here it is. The reason is fear. You are afraid of something or your spouse is afraid of something. All arguments stem from a deep-seated fear. When you fight, there is something that either or both of you are deeply afraid of. Very often, this is the fear of not being enough. This is one of the most deep-rooted human fears, not being enough. Sometimes it manifests as not having enough or not doing enough. I promise when you are having a fight because you think that your spouse isn't doing enough to help, you think the problem is them. But always, always the problem is stemming from you. This doesn't mean that your spouse doesn't have issues or problems. We all do. We're all broken. But what it means is that your spouse changing is not going to fix the problem in you. It never will. When you fight, this is a warning, a warning bell. You can think of it as like when the light comes on in the car that the battery needs to be changed or the tire needs more air. When you fight, it's a little warning sign that there is something in you broken, something you are afraid of. And if you can have the presence of mind to pause the fight, wouldn't that be amazing to just be able to push pause and have everyone around you freeze and just be able to have a minute to examine the situation? Usually it's hard to do in the heat of the moment and we're usually not too good at doing that. But so then after when you're replaying everything he said or she said over and over in your mind and coming up with all of the really clever, witty, sassy comebacks that you wish you would have thought of in the moment. When you're doing that, reflect, take that time and reflect, push the pause button and go, whoop, what was the warning light? What is it that I am afraid of? And when you figure it out, That's the key. That's the first step to getting to the core issue. And you will be able to save a lot of breath and regret and broken vases by figuring out the core issue before wasting your time rehashing all of the same old triggers. As always, I think the best way to illustrate these principles is through examples, through some stories. So I wanna share a couple of stories 
One of the stories that comes to mind is from one of the biggest blow-up explosive fights I've ever had with my siblings. It happened when my brother passed away. We had all gathered for his funeral, and we went to the church building the night before the funeral to set up pictures and set up a display, some memories of our brother. And we had an argument about whether we should have family and visitors stay in the same viewing room to talk or whether our brother's body should be in a quiet room that people would go through quietly and pay their respects and then they would leave that room to go into a separate room to visit with all of the family because there are eight kids in my family My mom is one of 12 kids. My dad is one of six. And we have cousins galore and uncles and aunts and people coming. And my brother was well-loved in our town. And we had really divisive opinions. There were some siblings that felt that, oh, yes, you you have all the visiting go on. All family is welcome and all visiting and you that's what we're there for. And that's all going to take place in the same room where the body and the display is. And some of us were adamant that that wasn't reverent, that that wasn't respectful, that people passing the casket wanted it to be quiet and be able to have that moment to reflect and it became an explosive argument and we were exhausted we were emotional and we were staying up late and could not get a resolution to the issue i'm currently reading the book becoming which is michelle obama's memoir and she tells a similar story when Her father passed away. Her father passed away in his 50s. He had lived with multiple sclerosis for years and years and years. And he had worked as um, a supervisor in a filtration plant. He ran the boilers. And even as his body debilitated with MS and he was confined to a wheelchair, he never missed a shift He was always there, even if it was in his wheelchair, rolling around the ramps between the boilers because nobody else could solve boiler issues like he could. And when he passed away and Michelle and her brother Craig were planning the funeral, they got into a heated argument about which casket to buy. Michelle wanted to buy the most expensive one. This was their father. He had literally worked himself to death to provide for their family, whereas her brother felt that their father had always lived a simple life and that he would be appalled at having a fancy casket with gold knobs. And so they went at it and had one of their biggest arguments. And when it comes right down to it, in both of these situations, it has nothing to do with the casket or the room, or where people are going to be visiting, does it? What is the core issue? It's the fear of not being enough. For me and my siblings, it was definitely the fear of wanting things to be enough to honor our brother, to show him enough that we loved him and how he mattered to us. And that fear just got all tangled up into the details. 
For Michelle and her brother, it wasn't about a casket. It was about their fears. Michelle talks about how she had been afraid she hadn't done enough to help her dad get to the hospital in time or to get medical care in time or that she hadn't appreciated him enough or listened to him enough. All of those things that we experience and feel when we lose a loved one. Have you noticed how you fight most when emotions are high, when stress is high? When something out of the ordinary has happened, especially when life circumstances seem out of your control, think about it. Aren't these the times when you feel most afraid? I wish at this point in the podcast that I could pass out to everyone a little remote clicker with a pause button, that we could all have this image, have this visualization that we have a little remote pause button and that when emotions get heated and life seems out of control and we start fighting about some trivial detail to hit that pause button and just step back and look at what is going on and say, wait a minute, what are we afraid of here? This fight really has nothing to do with what we think we're fighting about. What are we afraid of? Am I afraid I'm not doing enough? Am I afraid I'm not going to be enough? Am I afraid that I don't know enough, that I'm not wise enough to make the right decision? I want to share another story from Michelle Obama. I think a lot of us will be able to relate to this story and I relate to it and also their oldest daughter is named Malia. So Michelle tells a story of early in their marriage when Malia was about four years old and Sasha was about one, maybe about 18 months. And Barack had been elected to the state legislature of Illinois and they were living in Chicago and he would travel to Springfield, which was about three hours away for all of his legislature meetings. And her schedule at the time, she was waking up at 5 a.m. in the morning to be able to put in a couple of hours of work before anyone else woke up and before she needed to get her girls ready for the day. And she said, this left me a little ragged in the evening and sometimes put me in direct conflict with my night owl husband who turned up on Thursday nights from Springfield relatively chipper and wanting to dive headfirst into family life, making up for all the time he'd lost. But time was now officially an issue for us. If Barack's disregard for punctuality had once been something I'd gently teased him about, it was now a straight-up aggravation. She talks about how on Thursdays, which is the day that he would come home from Springfield, that she knew Thursdays made him happy, that she could hear the excitement in his voice when he called to report that he was done with work and finally headed home. She said, I understood it was nothing but good intentions that would lead him to say, I'm on my way or almost home. And for a while, I believed those words. I'd give the girls their nightly bath, but delay bedtime so that they could wake up to give their dad a hug. Or I'd feed them dinner and put them to bed, but hold off on eating myself, lighting a few candles and looking forward to sharing a meal with Barack. And then I'd wait. I'd wait so long that Sasha's and Malia's eyelids would start to droop and I'd have to carry them to bed. Or I'd wait alone, hungry and increasingly bitter, 
as my own eyes got heavy and candle wax pooled on the table. On my way, I was learning, was the product of Barack's eternal optimism, an indication of his eagerness to be home that did nothing to signify when he would actually arrive. Almost home was not a geolocator, but rather a state of mind. Sometimes he was on his way but needed to stop in to have one last 45-minute conversation with a colleague before he got into the car. Other times he was almost home but forgot to mention that he was first going to fit in a quick workout at the gym. In our life before children, such frustrations might have seemed petty, but as a working full-time mother with a half-time spouse and a pre-dawn wake-up time, I felt my patience slipping away until finally, at some point, it just fell off a cliff. When Brock made it home, he'd either find me raging or unavailable, having flipped off every light in the house and gone sullenly to sleep. Now, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know me, you know I love stories, I love memoir, I love seeing people's real lives, especially for a couple who have actually lived in the White House. It's incredibly validating for me to hear some of the just regular day-to-day life, family, and marriage issues that they had to resolve. And what I really love and want to share from Michelle's story here is how she discovered her deep-seated fear and by doing so was able to resolve heated future arguments. Because this issue with Barack and his eternal optimism that on the way home could mean anywhere from 15 minutes to three hours could have become a problematic trigger for arguments where they would end up rehashing the same thing over and over and over again for years to come. I think what Michelle did was essentially click the remote pause button and take a step back to look at what the bigger picture was going on here. And she realized in Barack's childhood, his father disappeared and his mother was devoted to him, but never tethered to him. She came and went. Sometimes she lived in Indonesia and then sometimes she would come back to Hawaii and Barack was raised by his grandparents, but he had hills and beaches and his own mind to keep him company and independence mattered to him. That's what he valued and he always would. She realized that she had been raised inside a tight weave of family. She said, I had grandparents and aunts and uncles all around, everyone jammed at one table for our regular Sunday night meals. And when it came down to it, I felt vulnerable when Barack was away, not because he wasn't fully devoted to our marriage. This is and has always been a meaningful certainty in my life. But because having been brought up in a family where everyone always showed up, I could be extra let down when someone didn't show up. I was prone to loneliness and now also fierce about sticking up for the girl's needs too. And I want to emphasize that this was not an easy resolution. In her own words, Michelle said, At home, our frustrations began to rear up often and intensely. Barack and I loved each other deeply, but it was as if at the center of our relationship, there were suddenly a knot we couldn't loosen. And then she goes on to tell that they decided to go to counseling. 
And I love her honesty in how she said that she anticipated that what counseling would be was her listing off all of her grievances and the counselor validating her grievances and telling Barack what he needed to do to shape up. But she said, this turned out to be the big revelation for me. There was no validating, no sides were taking. When it came to our disagreements, the counselor would never be the deciding vote. Instead, he was an empathetic and patient listener, coaching each of us through the maze of our feelings, separating our weapons from our wounds. And here was Michelle Obama's pause button revelation. I began to see that there were ways I could be happier and that they didn't necessarily need to come from Barack's quitting politics in order to take some nine to five job. I began to see how I'd been stoking the most negative parts of myself, caught up in the notion that everything was unfair, and then, like a Harvard-trained lawyer, collecting evidence to feed that hypothesis. Michelle explains that she decided to try out a new hypothesis, and it was this. It was possible that I was more in charge of my happiness than I was allowing myself to be. I was too busy resenting Barack for managing to fit workouts into his schedule, for example, to even begin figuring out how to exercise regularly for myself. I spent so much energy stewing over whether or not he'd make it home for dinner that dinners with or without him were no longer fun. This was a pivotal realization for her. And what I love here is that the resolution to her problems did not come from Barack changing. Rather, they came from personal revelations and changes she made for herself. She says, it's not to say that Barack didn't make his own adjustments. Counseling helped him to see the gaps in how we communicated, and he worked to be better at it. But I made mine, and they helped me, which then helped us. For starters, she recommitted to being healthy and found a way to exercise for herself. And then when it came to dinner, she said that she made boundaries, ones that worked better for me and the girls. We made our schedule and stuck to it. Dinner each night was at 6.30, baths were at 7, followed by books, cuddling, and lights out at 8 o'clock sharp. The routine was ironclad, which put the weight of the responsibility on Barack to either make it on time or not. For me, this made so much more sense than holding off dinner or having the girls wait up sleepily for a hug. I didn't want them ever to believe that life began when the man of the house arrived home. We didn't wait for dad. It was his job now to catch up with us. There are a lot of things that I love here in Michelle's recounting of one of their early marriage experiences. Mostly, I love how when it came to an issue that they argued about, that they fought about, that resolution came not from rehashing the same triggers over and over and over again, but resolution came when Michelle was able to pause, step back, and realize what her own fears were. Fears of being vulnerable, fears of her family life not being traditional the way that she had been raised. And by becoming aware of those fears, then she was able to address them and move forward and make plans and accommodations that fit their life and worked for them. Too often when we fight with our spouse, we are just stuck in the same rut over and over and over again. 
and the growth and progress of our family is stalled. In his book, A New Earth, Eckhart Tolle describes how each of us has a pain body. He describes that our pain body is like a living creature inside of us. It's made up of emotions and it has kind of its own primal intelligence. And like all life forms, it needs to feed. It needs to take on new energy. And the food it requires to replenish itself is energy that is compatible with its own. And that is why it thrives on negative energy and drama. The pain body is addicted to unhappiness. This is one of the biggest aha revelations when it comes to fighting with your spouse, that the fight itself is not so much about the issue at hand as it is a need for the inner pain body to feed. And the more needy one's pain body is, the more hungry and demanding it becomes. At the heart of our pain bodies is the fear that we are not enough. But what is interesting is that the goal of our pain body is not to resolve this issue, but to prove that it's true. The pain body will seek out evidence to prove how we are not enough, not good enough, not smart enough, not brave enough. And it becomes the root of so many arguments trying to find evidence to show that we aren't enough. Once you understand these two things, that the root cause of every argument is deep-seated fear, and that arguments are a way for the pain body to feed itself new negative dramatic energy, fights will take on a whole different perspective to you. You will see things in your arguments that you never recognized before. You will be able to push the pause button and go, oh, what are they afraid of? And you can even say that in a nice way. What are you afraid of? What is it that you are afraid will happen? And you can recognize it in yourself. What is it that I'm afraid of? Why does this matter to me? Why is this an important issue? What am I afraid of that is at risk here? One of the best theories of marriages I've ever heard is that we are attracted to the person who will bring out in us the things that need to be healed. Our life is a journey to become whole, to become more fully who we truly are, to discover more of our identity and peel away layers of veneer and become more and more true to ourselves, to heal what is broken and to become whole. Personally, I believe this is a process that requires a higher power. It's not something I believe I can do alone. But whatever you believe, it is a process it is our life journey to learn that me as I am is good enough and I don't need to be afraid. This, my friends, is the best nifty tool I can offer you. When stress rises, when emotions get high, ask, 
What am I afraid of? What is my partner afraid of? What is important to us that is being threatened here? And here's what's really cool. This is going to happen the next time that you find yourself having an argument with your spouse. Now that you've heard this podcast and you're aware of this, just just wait. It is going to be so cool. The next time you're having an argument and you're able to click your pause button and be present and kind of take yourself away, like have kind of an out-of-body experience, you are going to see your partner's pain body is trying to engage a fight with your pain body. And sometimes you can stand there and just realize that it's not about either of you. It's these two pain bodies dueling with each other and they're just trying to get full on drama. When that happens, it is so cool. You're just like, oh, this has nothing to do with me. This really isn't about anything. It is magical. It's the coolest thing. I can't wait for that to happen to you. Not that I want you to go and rush in, have an argument, but it's very empowering to be able to see what you couldn't see before and recognize the deeper issues and not get caught in that hamster wheel spinning in the rut over and over, but be able to get to the core of the issue so that you can make plans and move forward in your life and have a marriage and family relationship that really is so joyful, so rich, so full of meaning, not without problems. Definitely, definitely still have problems. We'll have problems every day, but that's okay. Problems aren't a problem. We have brains. We know how to solve problems when we can see the issues for what they really are. And it's about fear. You are fighting with your spouse because of fear. I hope this is so helpful to you, my friends. I wish you the best week. I wish the best for you and your families. Stay healthy, stay happy. I will meet you back here next week for another great episode of the Power Podcast. Until then, I'm Malia Warner. Bye-bye.